We changing the game on the name, put respect. Uncle Dad talks, yeah, live and direct. What did you expect from the two fly guys? One love Kevin Smith, one of more's golden eye. Mike's the level-headed, baby Gabe edits. Uncle Dad gets nervous all the time, but to his credit, he's clever. Spring stuff on Mike on a daily. It can mangle up a name amazingly. The range of events and topics makes it hard to stop listening. So why even attempt it? From bare knuckle fighting to Grammy songwriting to Burning Man flames. To firefighter video games and many, many more than I could put in a verse. Just subscribe, tune in to Uncle Dad's Multiverse. And many, many more than I could put in one verse. Just subscribe, tune in to Uncle Dad's Multiverse. All right. I brought it back, Mike, just for you. No? You don't like no, it? thanks. <laughs> uh, it all right. happened. <laughs> it are, indeed, it already happened. All right, everybody. Uh, indeed, it's Mike and your favorite pal, Uncle Dad, here. And we're hanging out with somebody who Mike cannot stop getting rosy cheeks about. He's so excited. He's blushing everywhere. His shirt is even red. Uh, Mike, go ahead and introduce <laughs> our guest here. Well, yes, um, I wore red just for the occasion. <laughs> um, yeah, this is one of my, uh, one of my favorite favorite artist for a long long time um i've followed his work throughout the years and you know it's it's uh it's not often we get someone on the show that i feel nervous to talk to so i'm going to do my best to you know do my uh, keep my chi in line here you got and this. Uh, you got this and uh yeah so um most of the world knows this artist by the name of shag his uh his real name is josh agle and um he's worked with a ton of people. He's done collaborative works with, with Kiss, who I know Uncle Dad loves, with uh, Disney, Marvel, uh, the Columbia Memorial Space Center, uh, Pink Panther. He's had solo uh, exhibitions all over the world in France, Japan, Italy, South America, Australia, of course, here in the US. And uh, we're delighted to have him on the show. So uh, welcome to the show, Shag. Uh, thank you, guys. I'm looking forward to this, actually. Yeah, so I um, I ran into you, or I, I didn't run into you. I, I saw your your booth with, at this most recent Comic-Con uh, in 2022, and it looks amazing. Your booth has the same feel as your store, which I've been to once in Palm Springs, which is amazing. Um, and you were there doing a signing on preview night, so I left my booth to run over to come and uh, and you know grab a grab a book and and, and say hi to you and meet you. So um, and thank you for that. First off, just how was your most recent Comic Con experience, uh, especially after COVID? <laughs> well, it was great that we were able to get back to a real Comic Con. Uh, I was a little uh, disappointed we still had to wear masks. Um, but I understand why, and that still didn't really detract from the whole experience. Um, and it seemed like people were just really excited to be back. You know, I, I, uh, I think people were just excited to be out and to, to enjoy the Comic-Con experience again after not having done it for two years. I mean, there was that mini Comic-Con in November, but that wasn't the same at all. I don't know if you guys attended that, but, uh. This was the this yeah. Was the it deal. did yeah. feel like that for me too. I have a booth way over in um in uh, the small press area, and it felt it felt genuine that people were glad to be back, um, all around. Like in, in in how people were purchasing things and just the overall energy and and the happiness of like, wow, it's been a long time since we've been able to to, to gather in here. So there was a real a real sense of that. And you had a couple of uh, Comic Con exclusives. Uh, one was a was a Godzilla piece, right? And um, yeah, the Godzilla thing. Uh, I worked with Toho Studios on that. Toho being the the Japanese movie studio that uh, made all the Godzilla films. And like a lot of things, it goes back to my childhood. You know, I I spent the first eight years of my life in Hawaii. And they showed a lot of the old Godzilla movies on TV. And so I grew up with those. They'd show them on Saturday afternoon after cartoons. And um, I always loved them, unless it was Son of Godzilla. I hated Son of Godzilla for some reason. <laughs> uh, I love Son of Godzilla. <laughs> <laughs> I know a lot of people do. And, uh, 
I did a Godzilla panel this year at Comic-Con, and when I mentioned that I didn't like Son of Godzilla, <laughs> the room turned against me. People were, <laughs> people were not happy I said that. But I don't know. I just don't like his big googly eyes. I don't think it fits in with the other you know, world of kaiju. Yeah, I can yeah. I can totally see that. It uh I thought the piece was great. I have uh you know, I, I stare at a lot of the of your pieces. You also had a really wonderful um Batman piece that was uh on for sale there at your booth. And you know, it's one of those a lot of your work, you can stare at it for a long time because there's there's a, there's so many things going on and um I know you as the painter, you have your own vision and your own kind of thought into what the piece is but but if it seems to me like you you and, and and maybe i've even read this somewhere about you that you enjoy letting and kind of almost watching the the viewer kind of have their own experience with the artwork right a lot of uh my prints and paintings are set in the middle of a story so when somebody looks at it they can tell something happened beforehand and they can see that something's going to happen afterwards uh, it's kind of the middle of the story arc. And so it, it's on the viewer to figure out what happened and what's going to happen, which um, has been something I've been doing since I first started painting and something they told us not to do in art school. But I do a lot of things they told me not to do in art school, uh, and it's worked out for me. I just look at it as a way to engage the viewer. Yeah, I mean, it is true. Like your paintings do feel like you're you're reading a story and, and you can go around it in circles and almost have like a different view by the time you get from, especially your really like panoramic ones, you know, by the time you get to the end, you're seeing something, you may see something that you didn't even see uh, when you're first passing over it. So I, it's one, your stuff is one of those things where you can just stare at it for, for a while and, and have a lot of fun. And so, you know, you mentioned art school and, and I, I do want to talk to you about school because I read a little bit about your school experience and you went to Cal State Long Beach, correct? Yes. But, but when you went into school, you weren't necessarily going in for art and you were going in for what was architecture and economics. Am I right? Well, my first year I was an architecture student and I switched over to accounting and I paid my way through school uh, doing art on the side. So I was a commercial illustrator and a graphic designer, and that's how I paid my way through school. And then after you know a couple of years of that, I realized how stupid that was. So I changed my major to fine art because uh, I knew I could make a living as an artist. I didn't know I would be as successful as I am, but I, I had confidence enough that I knew I could make a living at it. Yeah, so what? And let me ask you that because I, I I found myself in a similar kind of path. Um, what you were doing commercial illustrations? So, like, what were some of the jobs you were picking up back then in school? Uh, it was mostly record industry stuff. Actually, I did a lot of like reissue records uh, for surf instrumental bands and sixty garage band sixties garage bands, uh, some punk rock records, things like that. Um, Mostly for smaller labels. I did some major label stuff, but even smaller record labels needed to pay somebody to do their record covers. Um, so that's what I was doing. And it was a fun, I, fun. I thought I would stay in the record industry until I entered the art industry. So, so was there a certain point or was there like a certain job where, where there was that switch for you from where you realized, okay, I'm not going to be an accountant. I need to be an artist. I'm doing this on the side and I actually love this. Like, was there an aha moment? Was it, or was it just a gradual? Yeah, there was, <laughs> it was, I was sitting in an accounting class and before the class, uh, these students came in from the accounting students softball league to talk about the league. And I remember thinking, God, accounting students are so boring. Who would want to play softball with them? And I was like, wait, I'm an accounting student. What am I, you know, there's something wrong here. So I actually went and talked to a counselor immediately after that and switched my major. And were your parents, how were your parents with that? Cause I mean, I feel like my parents, you know, they let me do what I was going to do, but I think most parents get freaked out when they hear their, their, their kid or child or college student wants to now be an artist. Were they okay with it? 
Yes. Uh, my parents were supportive. Uh, years later, my dad told me that when he heard that, he was like, uh, he was not happy, but he hid that from me. <laughs> um, and then my dad's an accountant too, so he thought I was following in his footsteps. But he did my taxes forever until he retired, so he, he could see kind of the progression of my career. And at some point, he realized I had made the, the right career choice. Yeah, and, and was there... Was there any kind of uh, was there any kind of self doubt for you, like as 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 becoming an artist? Uh, was there some was there a part of that was that that kept you from doing that initially, like uh, a bit of, of self doubt in your work or or in or in becoming an artist at all for you? Yeah, there was. I, I don't know if self doubt is the right word, but it just seemed a, a more sure thing if I became an accountant. You know, I'd seen my dad do it. He made a good living. It looked pretty easy. Uh, so it was almost like taking the easy way out to me. Oh, this is easy. I can do this. Mm -hmm. um, but it wasn't the thing I loved, you know, which I always tell people, if, if you can find a way to make a living doing what you love, even if it's not a great living, you'll be a lot happier than if you go into something you don't like and make a ton of money because you spend the most of, most of your waking hours working at your job. So if your job sucks, then your life sucks. And I tell people that all the time. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, it, it, it's funny. Cause I, I, uh, I also spent um, well, well most of my twenties working as a pharmacy tech and thinking that uh, at some point I'm going to finish school and become a pharmacist, but I had been doing my art on the side and you know, there was a, there was an aha moment for me too, uh, where I took that leap. And yeah, I struggled for a few years being really broke uh, as an artist and not as a pharmacy person, but I was miserable doing pharmacy. Like I would go into work every day, hating it. And, and when I switched to doing art, even though I was broke, I still felt like I was doing what I was here to do. Like this was my purpose here. And, and that just felt like this genuine amount of happiness come out. I mean, even though I couldn't afford to like go out to eat every night or whatever, it, it still felt like I was on the right path, which never felt that way in pharmacy. And I would imagine for you as an accountant looking at numbers all day, it never felt quite a hundred percent right. If, if you are creative like you uh, and me and uncle dad, uh, yeah. <laughs> and you're not using that creativity, I think there's a part of your life that I'm, I'm a, I'm a journalist. <laughs> well, that's creative. Do you love what you do? Uh, I guess. <laughs> I, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. And it's funny that you, it's funny you talk about this because I basically, this is my only job now. I gave up my day job just to do this. Well, then you do love what you do. Absolutely. Yeah. So, if, you know, if you're creative and you don't have an outlet for that, it's like, it's like being hungry and not having something to eat. You know, there's a part of you that feels like you need something in your life. And, and, you know, as a creative person, if I couldn't do that stuff. Yeah, there, I think a lot a of people of my probably life have that where they end up in a job that's comfortable, that has benefits. That's like you said, you're, you know, oh, I, I this I can go into accounting. There's always going to be accounting jobs. And, and it's kind of you're kind of guaranteed a career, I guess, at that point. And, and how many people who are actually really creative and haven't like went down that road with themselves do these jobs and spend their entire life miserable and medicated and staring out the window, wishing for something they don't even know what it is sometimes. Yeah. And a lot of them can't wait to retire. You know, they live their whole life. And they, it seems like a horrible way to go through life waiting, waiting till you're 65 and then, Oh, I can start living when I'm 65, you know? Yeah. When the, when you're like most, mobile and well-oiled joints are uh years are behind you right <laughs> yeah. um and what would the world be like if josh agel did never became shag and just did accounting like we would have missed out on all this amazing art that you've graced us all with like i couldn't even imagine i know you've inspired me in many ways i i, I am not the only person that you have touched and inspired with your art, I am sure. So you don't just do yourself a favor 
when you follow your own path in that way, you do the whole world a favor when you do it, is what I feel. You know, you, uh, you encourage well, others. I, I like hearing that. Yeah. Cause you encourage others to do, to do the same thing. And, yeah. and, and it just radiates genuineness and, and other people can feel that and, and they want to support that. And then it just radiates out to others. So, so thank you, uh, Josh, for following your, following your true path. Um, yes, here I go again. Dang it. <laughs> Thank so, you. Okay, so you graduate from Long Beach. Um, More gushing, indeed. <laughs> uh, sometimes I feel selfish because most of the art I do is stuff to make me happy, you know? Like, and that's kind of one of my, the guiding things of my career is like, is that something I would want to hang on my wall or is that something I would want to own? Um so I kind of do it for myself, and I'm glad people have, have come along and appreciate it as well. The very first five paintings I did, I didn't think they were going to sell. So I sat down and thought, what would look best in my apartment? You know, what kind of art would I want in my own apartment? And those were the first five shag paintings. That was kind of the genesis of shag. I was sitting there thinking, like, what kind of art would, would I like to own? And people did end up liking those paintings and buying them. But uh, it, so I don't know if you'd call that selfishness, but it, it is a little bit selfish, I guess. I'm trying to please myself more than anyone else. Yeah, well, also, if it doesn't <laughs> yeah. sell, I mean, you want to be able to do something with it. You know, you don't want to throw it right in the garbage, right? <laughs> yeah. The funny thing is, I don't hang my art up in my own house. <laughs> at, you know, back before I was a known artist, I'd paint things from my own wall. But then it was kind of like, if you go see a band and a guy in the band is wearing his own band t-shirt, you know, it's, it's kind of weird. <laughs> or, or a podcaster wearing his own podcast. Art. <laughs> no, especially. Especially that. <laughs> so, so you were fortunate, you know, your first five paintings that you did sold. Where, do you know where those paintings are now? Or do you have like photos of them? Or I, I would imagine you probably took photos of them so you can other people or yourself can go back and look at the beginning of all this. Like what, what were those paintings? Those up? paintings were all um, set in tiki bars. Cause at the time I was really into going out to tropical bars, having my ties, collecting the tiki mugs. And um, my vision for those first five paintings is I wanted five tiki bar paintings in my house. Um, and I used sort of a, a vintage, commercial illustration style to do them, which I hadn't seen used in a, a fine art gallery. Like that style wasn't something you saw in a gallery at that time. Now you see it in a lot of galleries and it's not unexpected. So that was my goal. I wanted to paint tiki bars scenes using this sort of jazz influenced sort of cubist commercial art style. And those five paintings, um, they've been in some of my books and you know, over the years, they've, they've been resold and they've come up at auction from time to time. So occasionally I find out what's happening to them. Um, I price the first five paintings at $200 or $300 each because $300 was the most I could ever imagine myself spending on a piece of art. And maybe that was part of why people bought them. They were cheap. Uh, but, you know, a guy spent $200 on a <laughs> painting and then 10 years later, one of those five original paintings, um, he sold it 10 years later for $20,000, which is the beauty of the art world. I made $200 and he made $19,800 on it, you, you know? Oh my gosh. Yeah, isn't that crazy that, you know, once you sell the piece, it's, as the artist, it's out there, it's done, and it can be sold time and time and time again afterwards, and all these other people are making money off of you and you've only made $200 and everyone else is making a bunch of dough off of you, which is crazy, which is part of, and I don't know how much you've even looked into this, but the, the whole NFT world um, and, and artists selling art there, like you can write in the contract every time it's sold that you continue to make a certain amount, a certain percentage every time it's resold, which I think is great for artists. Um, because like yourself, 
you sold something for $200 and, and I don't even know, I'm not that great at math what the uh, percentage rate of inflation that painting occurred with going from 200 to 20,000, but yeah. I'm, I, it's, it's a lot. That's, I think that's a 10, uh, a 1000% increase, right? Or is that a 10, whatever? It's a lot. Thank you. I think but you I'm, know, it's interesting you talk about NFTs because I, I've been predicting for the last almost a year that that technology is going to be attached to fine art. That blockchain technology, the same thing that keeps track of an NFT being resold, eventually every, every piece of art, you know, not a piece of art sold on Etsy or something, but any piece of art sold in a gallery is going to have a, basically an NFT attached to it so that the artist and the gallery gets a piece of it every time it sells again. It just makes sense. And I've had a, actually a couple companies approach me about that, you know, saying we want to do this. We want to put your art on the blockchain. Um, I've told them it's kind of too early right now to do it, but I predict that's just where it's going to go. Everybody's, you know, it, it's going to be a part of life that things you buy are going to be on that blockchain, that somebody else is going to get a piece of it when you resell it. Yeah, it's. I definitely feel it's the way it's going. I've been kind of following it uh closely i made a couple of pieces of my art as nfts which they never sold but um it, it is a it is a very interesting thing and, and it's still very early in the, in the stage it's still kind of the wild west of it all but i would i would be I, yeah i think the age of the like the board ape you know pfp profile picture nft i think that era of nfts is kind of you know it's going to change into something else people aren't going to be able to pay $300 for a JPEG and then sell it for a million dollars down the road. You know, there's going to have to be more to it. So I know, you know, the NFT people I talk to are trying to figure out how to add more utility to the NFTs to actually add intrinsic value, um, you know, some sort of value to an NFT. Because right now the value to an NFT, especially like a board Ape, the value is that it goes up in value, you know, <laughs> Mm -hmm. But if you buy an NFT and it doesn't go up in value, then what what other value is that? You know, what else is there to that NFT? Do you do you currently own any NFTs? Have you have you already dipped your toe into the purchase <laughs> realm of that? I own one NFT and I just bought it to see how you went about it, what it was like minting an NFT. You know, I had to get a. Uh, uh, that's kind of where I stand on it. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm kind of similar with you. Like, I, I it's exciting, and I and I did the same thing. Uh, and it also kind of makes my head spin, and I'm just, I get, I get tired when I, <laughs> I try to figure it all out because it's <laughs> it's kind of confusing at uh, some of it. And then you have it, and you're like, okay, this might make some money, and what else do I do with it? Like you were saying, and, and it, it's not. I mean, obviously, you can mount a, a, a digital screen to your wall and it can show your digital art but i don't know i'm i'm i guess i'm older and i'm old school and i still like a, a, a painting like an actual painting on the wall or yeah. a very nice print um somehow that just it feels more tangible and real to me um but I, now i sound like an old man so i gotta move along <laughs> I, I love it i think you're totally right sir <laughs> Um, so one of the things I wanted to mention too is, uh, you know, I mentioned your store. So I'm always really curious about where that point is, where for an artist, you go from being, you know, you, you start at the bottom, you kind of grind your way into some success, but then there's that moment where you're really successful, you were, you were successful and then you became really successful. And then there, there's a climb there and where that point was for you, where you noticed it was this gradual increase. And then all of a sudden whoa, this is, this is wild. This, this success is like, it's actually, I'm, it's happening. Was it, was it when you opened your store in Palm Springs or was it before that? Where was that for you? Well, I mean, I always say my career was just this sort of gradual incline, you know, like the first time I had a show in a real gallery, uh, you know, I felt like I'd made it as an artist. And then um, then the first time I had a show outside of the U.S., I felt like I'd made it as an artist. But I think the turnaround was actually opening the Shag store because then there's this 
location that's open 300 and well, in the case of the Shag store, 363 days a year. Um, and there are people working at it, you know, at eight or 10 hours a day or 12 hours a day when it's open. And all they're doing is, is, you know, working, I mean, basically promoting and selling your art, you know, and now, uh, there are, are 17 people at the Shag store besides me. There are two stores. There's one in Las Vegas too. Um, and just the idea that they spend, you know, that's how they make their living is selling, selling the art I make. Um, that's when it kind of became like this, this other thing where it was way more successful than I ever thought it would be. Yeah. So it definitely the store was like part of that or, or the, the nucleus of that thing. And, and so I, I've been to your store and I, it, I was blown away and I bought a huge beach towel, which I have hanging on my wall, um, from there. And, uh, um, I just assumed that, that, that store was, and, and you can correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong with my information here, but I just assumed it was 100%. It was your store, but you actually, it, it was opened with some, with some people that you did some artwork for that were working with the, the Palm Springs preservation society foundation. Am I right with that? Yeah. Basically, um, one of the guys on the Preservation Foundation had opened a gallery in Palm Springs to show my art um, and to show other artists as well. But then, you know, after a few years, he said about, I think he said like 85% of his sales were my art. So the other artists he was showing were only uh, selling about 15% of, of his income. So he had the idea to open a, a gallery dedicated to completely to shag. And I, I said yes, because I wanted to design the interior of the gallery. Or, and the other thing I said is I wanted to be called the shag store, not the shag gallery. Because when I thought of artists that had their own galleries, I thought of like, they weren't artists I was really into. So think like Thomas Kincaid, I don't know if you know him. Um, or Wyland, you know, the guy who paints whales and stuff. I didn't want something like that. And the other thing is people, some people are afraid to go into a gallery, but nobody is afraid to go into a store. So it's really a gallery, but it's called the Shag Store and it sells other things besides art. You know, you mentioned the beach towel. Um, so that was kind of my whole philosophy behind it. And I think it's work. I don't think people look at me and think I'm like Thomas Kincaid or something. You guys know who Thomas Kincaid is? I, I know of that name. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yes. And I will agree with you because there are times where I see a gallery and I don't want to go in there because it feels very sterile or almost like there's a pressure when you walk in to, to purchase the art or to be so serious about the art. And um, you see, almost see the art in a different way when it's in a quote unquote gallery space. Um, was the store yeah you're right it, you're not afraid to walk into a store and it's very inviting and, and it's fun and it's colorful it's not blank white walls and and track lighting you know spotlighting on your artwork it the whole place feels like the environment that your art belongs in and then the gallery feels like it's in a place that the got there i'm sorry the store feels like it's a place the store belongs in from the way it looks I mean, I'm talking about the Palm Springs one. Yes. I, haven't, I haven't yet visited the, the Las Vegas one. You know, there's a section in, in Palm Desert where a lot of high-end galleries are. And, and when I opened the, the Shag store where it is in Palm Springs, a lot of people ask, why isn't it down there in El Paseo? That's like where the fancy galleries are. And, you know, I said, I want to be somewhere where people are going to walk by and never, maybe have never heard of, of me or my art, but are intrigued enough to step into the store. And that's actually what what happened. So the the store itself has sort of become the public face of me, if you will. More people know of my art through the store than anything else nowadays. Wow, oh, and that that's wild. That's and your art is so you know. Speaking of your art and, and people knowing of it, your your style is so distinct. It's like yes, you you've kind of emulated those old those jazz records, and I can envision those when you say that uh, what they look like when you kind of you kind of took that art and then made it your own especially with the colors you use uh the kind of the expressions your art you're very recognizable and it and it's no matter what 
your painting, whether it's just, a, you know, an, a scene in LA in a party, or if it's, it's your Star Wars, the, the cantina, you know, you've done, like I said, the Batman, you've done a bunch of Planet of the Apes work, HR Puffin stuff. Uh, I imagine you're a fan of all these things too, right? Yes. Yeah, if I'm not a fan of it, I, I feel like it won't be a good piece of art. So I've been approached by other things. Um, you know, movie studios approach me and say, like, would you like to do a, well, Jura Jurassic Park's one of them that I said no to. You know, they wanted me to do a Jurassic Park piece of art. And I said, you know, the movie's fine. I don't have a problem with it. But it didn't really, like, touch me or really, like, you know, it wasn't something that I really was into. And I told them if I did a piece of art, it wouldn't be a good piece of art because my heart wouldn't be in it. So it's got to be something I'm into or it's not going to be a good piece of art. And that's always been my, my kind of philosophy on these things. Yeah. I, I mean, that's, it, that's great when you're at the point in your artistic c career journey that you can, you know, choose rather than let the work choose you. Um, so obviously kudos to you for that. And it shows, I mean, I, I, I have several of your books and, um, yeah, the work, the work is great. And, um, more gushing. What's, uh, <laughs> what's your, I mean, so I, I know you're a fan of the fifties and the sixties. Are you a huge fan of the sixties Batman stuff? Yes. I mean, that was also part of my childhood. I didn't watch it when it was originally on, but I watched it in reruns and I mean, that's the first Batman I was introduced to. I had a Batman lunchbox when I was a little kid. So, you know, I was always a Batman fit, fan as a kid. And, and then um, I think it was, what, the late 80s when the Dark Knight comic came out. And that was like the first time I saw a Batman that was different than the Batman I was I had grown up with. And then the Tim Burton movies came out and um, Batman became this huge, huge thing. Uh, but it was the... 66 Batman, the TV show with, with Adam West, that was was my original Batman. So that's kind of the Batman that uh, I, I is closest to my heart. Never forget your first Batman. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I do love the uh, Christopher Nolan Batman movies, though. You know, I wouldn't be opposed to doing like a Christopher Nolan Batman print. Um, maybe. Whoa. <laughs> that might happen down the He's road. just I don't putting know. it out there. <laughs> maybe that'll get maybe this will uh, that'll get picked up on the newswire and and uh the, the studios will get word and they might be reaching out and we might get that that would be that would be great yeah i mean i i also love the the 60s batman stuff and in the cartoon you know intro that they had and uh it just i mean and those colors that are in that show translate so well into your art i mean you you use a lot of great contrasting colors, bold colors. So I could see like that influence, you know, as a kid coming into your artwork now. And uh, what, speaking yeah, of that, what was, what was it about those old, what was it about those old records and those old, like that old kind of fifties, um, you know, cause I know you were, you were a kid through the sixties, but what about that stuff called to you that, that, that you liked it? Was it just the simplicity, the kind of minimalist style or what, what called to you about that stuff? Yeah, I think it was partly that, but partly when I discovered those old records, it was completely different than what else was going on in illustration and graphic design. So this would be, yeah, probably the, the mid eighties when I found like some old jazz records illustrated by Jim Florida Flora, I'm sorry. And it didn't look like anything else around. It had been kind of forgotten, that style. But to me, it evoked this sort of like early 60s, 50s kind of beatnik vibe uh, that I really liked. It, a little bit of a like a bachelor pad thing. All of that stuff, which was not at all happening in the 80s. Uh, and maybe that's why I liked it so much, because it was not what was going on at that time. Yeah. And, and there's something about nostalgia that just feels, that just calls, right? Like, uh, it, which most of your work is very, has a very nostalgic feel to it, which I love. Um, 
were you uh were you a fan of the Mad Men TV show? Yeah, but I got to it late because people, you know, when it came on, everybody was like, oh, you have to watch this thing. The costumes are great. The the sets are great. And I was like, I'm not going to watch a show because of the costumes and sets. Uh, and then my my wife was actually watching it. And I walked into the room and I was like, you know, immediately like intrigued by what was going on. Not the not the costumes and the sets, but what was going on with the characters. So I started uh, watching it and. I thought it was great. I really liked it. Yeah, I came into it late as well. And and there's that scene where he talks about nostalgia when he's selling the, the projector. And and it, from that moment on, yeah, I, I binge watched the entire whatever seven other seasons there was. It was, it was a really great show. Yeah. Uh, I could I could totally see you doing a, I don't, and if you've done one, forgive me, but a, a Mad Men piece i think would be awesome a shag madman yeah i think that would work out really well but i'm probably not going to do that and because i'll tell you why <laughs> when madman was yeah, on tell me why. <laughs> um they did a, a series of merchandise actually um that looked a lot like my art and when i saw it i was like you know this madman merch looks like my art what's going on and i researched the artist who did it and i actually found an article and she talked about being hired by mad men to do the art and she said they told me they wanted it to look like shag and i was like wow. why didn't they come to me you know and then years later um i was at a cocktail party in palm springs and I met Matthew Weiner, the, the creator of Mad Men. I didn't ask him about that, but when he met me, he was like, he basically said, oh, you know all about my vibe and what I'm into, you know, something like that. Like you're, you know, like you're hip to it or something. I should have said, yeah, why didn't you hire me to, <laughs> to do that stuff? <laughs> yeah, you could have said, well, it seems like you know about my vibe too, bro. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, isn't that funny? Like uh, someone else, they will hire someone else to do you instead of just hiring you. I don't know. Maybe they, they felt like they got it cheaper or something, uh, less expensive. Yeah. Who knows, right? I think that's part of it. And they just think I'm unapproachable. Um, I know... You guys know Danny Elfman, right? Composer. Uh, yes. Yeah. Of course. I know his agent, and his agent told me a story once, which I think is great. This is back in the the '90s, where everything sounded like Danny Elfman. Like every TV commercial, every movie had a soundtrack that sounded like Danny Elfman. And Danny Elfman went to his agent, and he complained, like, "Why are they hiring, you know, other musicians to sound like me?" could you put the word out there that I'm available to sound like myself? And if they don't, but he also said, if they can't afford to use Danny Elfman, I'll still do the music and they can pay me less if they don't use my name. So that's what he started doing. He started doing oh. Danny Elfman-esque soundtracks without using his name, Danny Elfman, at a reduced rate, which blew my mind. Wow, that is incredible. Wow. I had no idea. It's like a pseudonym, a cheaper version of yourself, pseudonym. Yeah. Pseudonym. Am I saying that right? Pseudonym. Yes. Pseudonym. Yeah, you're right. You're right. You're right. <laughs> pseudonym. Um, will, will we see a shag, a cheaper pseudonym running around out there? <laughs> uh, I don't think so. There have been a couple okay. times, Darn. like a few years ago, this is probably like seven or eight years ago, um, my agent approached me. I still have an agent who like, fields offers for like commercial art, even though I rarely do commercial art, but a big pharmaceutical company approached her and asked if I would do some art for a couple ads, um, which I said yes to because they were offering a lot of money, um, <laughs> which, you know, sometimes you do things because you get paid and they, mm -hmm. and they didn't, they didn't want my signature on it. They wanted the style and the feel, but they, they didn't want it to actually say shag, which kind of surprised me. Yeah. I would think as a, and you made the same money. So, yeah. So for the next year, people would bring me magazines and show me the ad and say, 
did you do this? This looks like your heart. Somebody's ripping you off. And I'd be like, yeah, I did. Oh, that's funny. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I would think a pharmaceutical, it would be good on the pharmaceutical company's part to to show that they, uh, you know, they collab with with an artist. Yeah, it was weird. I mean, (laughs) huh. What did people have you sign the pharmaceutical ad? Um, I may have signed a couple of them. Yeah. I think because my name wasn't on it, I think people just assumed it was uh, uh, some other artist aping my style, maybe. So now, okay, since I told you I worked in pharmacy for all those years, a lot of those years you were one of my uh, favorite artists. I need to find this pharmaceutical ad so that I can, it only feels right that I find it and have you sign it at some point in the future. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, you know, and, and, and speaking of that, when I was younger, I, I always assumed before I before I'd really re- researched you or or, or uh, even talked to you that your art when I was younger, I thought your art was all digital. I mean, your the lines look so crisp and clear. I always assumed it was all done like in an Adobe Illustrator type of type of uh, program. But your your lines are so crisp and it it's so clean. Like what's you must have the steadiest hand in the business, I would imagine. <laughs> well, um, part of the reason for that look is when I started painting, I wanted my paintings to look like silkscreen prints. And I couldn't afford to do a fine art silkscreen print. So I was like, well, I'm going to have to make a painting that looks as much like a silkscreen print as possible. You know, a silkscreen print has flat areas of color and super hard edges between the colors. Um, tape helps. You know, I tape off a lot of my lines. So a straight line, I always tape that off. Or if it's a gentle curve, I can tape that off. The other thing I do, which they was a no-no in art school, is I rest my hand on the actual canvas when I'm painting, uh, which you're not supposed to do. And that helps me be more steady when I'm painting a shape. Um, and I paint horizontally instead of vertically. So it's not like you picture an artist standing in front of his easel. Well, I'm sitting down at a table and my, my canvas is horizontal. Um, so those, you know, that all helps to kind of keep the steady hand and keep those crisp lines. Yeah, but then you just have to worry about, you know, your art getting smeared from your hand on the piece. I, I'm sure you have ways around that, though. But yeah, I have a blow dryer. I, often, I, I pull out the blow dryer and wow. I dry it. <laughs> That's a great. T- I might try that because I often do that and I find out I've smeared my ink all over the place and then. You know, the whiteout has to come and yada, yada, yada. Um, you know, I, I, a bunch of years ago, I, I don't know, I won't say because it will embarrass me. Um, but a bunch of years ago, I actually met you at a, I believe it was an artist alley table, or maybe you were like a guest at Comic-Con, but it, you were just sitting at a small six-foot table at Comic-Con a bunch of years ago. How Did you remember this? Yeah. Yeah, that was 2006. Oh, wow. And I was an official guest of Comic-Con, so I was giving a panel. And um, because of that, they gave me a table. And at first, I wasn't going to use the table. You know, I was like, I don't want to sit at a table for, you know, during Comic-Con. But then I I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to come up with a Comic-Con exclusive piece of art. You know, it was a little series of prints. And I'm only going to do a hundred of them. And I'm going to sit at that table with my business partner until they're all sold. And so I remember, um, you know, I, I went, I didn't even go to the Thursday night preview, the VIP preview. Now the VIP preview is on Wednesday night, but back then it was Thursday. I didn't go to the Thursday night VIP preview. I set up my table on Friday and then by the middle of Friday, I was sold out of my artwork. So I just, that was it. I left the table and didn't come back. And I remember I'd made a little like banner to hang around the table and somebody <laughs> stole the banner after I left. Like, <laughs> like Greg abandoned his table. I'll just take his banner. But I was happy. I sold everything. And, like, that was actually my music. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was me. I have your, I have that banner and I look at it every morning when I wake up. <laughs> that's, why he, that's, why, that's why he brought the story up to tell you that. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, actually, one of the people who did talk to you there um, was a friend of mine named Chris Wisnia, who 
who asked you about uh, doing using some of your artwork for a for a cover for a book that he was doing called Doris Danger, Giant Monster. Do you remember this? Yes. Yeah, I think he did two of them. Um, you do at least two of them that have my art. Yeah, yeah, I remember those. I still have them somewhere. Yeah. Right on. Yeah, he's a. But if you'd asked me, and, how did that come about? Also, I would have been like, I don't remember. I don't remember where I met him or. <laughs> But now that you say that, I'm like, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it was there. It was there. I, I always love that story. And he even said that too. He's like, yeah, he was just sitting there at a table. And it was like, well, you got to talk to Shag if he's just sitting there at a table. Um, so um, speaking of books, so you, you've got a, a new book that came out recently, which is a, a Palm Springs book, which you love Palm Springs. Your store's in Palm Springs. Um and, and this book isn't necessarily just like uh, your art of Palm Springs. And it even says it when you open it up. It's kind of like a like a serenade to the city uh, and, and it's history kind of. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I you know, I've done a lot of Palm Springs art, but I've also been a big booster of the city of Palm Springs for years and years. And I watched it go. You know, when I first came out to Palm Springs, it was it wasn't great, let's say. Like, I thought Palm Springs could be great. And, uh, you know, I wanted it to be great. So I started working with people. We all had this idea in mind that we could make Palm Springs great. Because Palm Springs used to be such a cool, you know, it, it's where, like, the, the movie stars hung out, you know. They all had their houses out there, yeah. Sinatra and the Rat Pack and everyone. And then it became, like, a place where old people played golf, you know. It was super boring and sleepy, <laughs> but the bones were still there. The architecture was still there, that mid-century modern houses. And right around the same time in the late 90s, people got this idea that they could buy one of those houses. They were super cheap and they could fill it full of like mid-century furniture and pretend they were a movie star, you know, spending the weekend in Palm Springs in 1964. And a lot of people kind of fixated on that idea at the same time, including me, you know, we were trying to live the Palm Springs lifestyle the way we wish it used to be. And then slowly Palm Springs became that. So now Palm Springs is that, you know, people go there to vacation because they want to experience that Palm Springs lifestyle. So it kind of happened, surprisingly. Yeah, it's amazing. And there it again is that nostalgic feel like there's this, uh, this pull for that. And, and, it's such a cool place. And then, and, and I, I never went there when it was just the old people golfing, but I've been there recently and it, it is, it feels fun. The architecture is so, so neat. Um, and, and in the book, I'm looking through it and they've got all these old postcards and there's a postcard uh, of one of the old, uh, what's the tramway, uh, which I didn't even, I saw that in one of your paintings of Palm Springs and didn't even realize that that was a real thing that was, that was happening there like that where would where did the the tramway go over yeah it's you know it's just as you drive into palm springs up a little canyon um and i've actually hosted a couple cocktail parties on the tram uh because i did a piece of art of a bunch of people having a party on the tram and so my business partner's like let's make this re a reality let's have a cocktail party on the tram so we chartered a couple big buses. Uh, we took people around to a couple places on the, you know, in Palm Springs. Then we went to the tram station. They wouldn't let us actually drink on the tram, unfortunately. But we went up the mountain. <laughs> and then at the top of the mountain, at the upper tram station, we had more cocktails and we had a live band. And I called it the 55th annual cocktail climb, even though it was the very first one, because I wanted, I thought Smart. it would be cool if people had been doing it since like 1959. And then we, we did it the second time. I called it the second annual 55th annual cocktail club. <laughs> uh, I think that's very clever. I've been wanting to that. do another one. So I, I think I'm going to do another cocktail climb one of these days. Oh, man. I will, uh, I will, will you be uh, posting about such party? Cause I would love to attend. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. I, I definitely want to make it down there. I did have the pleasure of watching somebody 
pass out on the tram because they had drunk too much and fall face forward onto the tram deck. Well, if Mike comes to the next one, that's going to happen again. <laughs> I'll probably fall in the back of my head. Can I ask a quick question? Yes. Uh, because because you, uh, are, you, you've talked about cocktails quite a bit, I'm just curious, what is your favorite cocktail? Well, um, I had three favorite cocktails depending on the situation. So if I was in a tiki bar, someone somewhere where they were making fancy Situational, cocktails, I love it. I liked a Singapore sling. If I were just in a regular bar, you know, regular bartender, I would drink vodka tonics because I could drink them all night and never get sick uh, and never be hung over the next day. So I could drink like I could drink like 20 of them in an evening and feel great the next morning. But then my drink of choice at home. Whoa. (laughs) I was a really good drinker. I have to say, uh, until I started drinking at home. And when I drank at home, I drank, uh, just straight Bacardi gold. And I drank too much of it. I used to call drinking. Why waste time? (laughs) Yeah. No, I used to call drinking career research since all my paintings were like cocktail parties and stuff. But at some point, the, the research overtook the career, you know, and I, after mm-hmm. spending like two weeks in a drunken haze, not making any art, I was like, something has to change here. And the simplest way to do it is just to not drink. So I said, I'm, okay, as of this point, I'm not going to have a drink for 10 years. I said, I'm not going to drink for 10 years. I'm going to take a 10-year break from drinking. Uh, and I picked 10 years because I had to get both my kids through college. So it's like, okay, my youngest kid will be done with college in 10 years. So I'm not going to drink for 10 years. So that's, so I just stopped in a day. And that's what I did. I haven't had a drink since. Um, and it's actually been, <laughs> it's been nine years. And people are like, okay, Whoa. so are you going to, you know, it's coming up. Are you going to start drinking again? And I'm really torn. Wow. Because not drinking has a lot of advantages, you know. Uh, <laughs> it's cheaper. You, you it know, does. It does. You're in control. Uh, and I thought one of the things I thought is like, man, when I stop drinking, I'm not going to be social anymore. But drinking taught me how to be social. So I can go to a party and have fun and talk to people. Those are skills I learned when I drank. So I don't need to drink to be social. Um the one thing I regret is I get offered so much free alcohol and <laughs> <laughs> I bet. that would be the one reason to start drinking again, to take advantage of all the free alcohol that I, that I'm offered. But I'm leaning towards not drinking again, not, not resuming. It just doesn't make any sense. It's healthier not to do it. Um, so that's where I am. I have a dilemma in a year. Hmm. <laughs> that is quite a dilemma. Or, or, or an opportunity. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, and after 10 years, you know, like, who knows if that vodka tonic, no hangover trick is still going to work. Because I'm like, whoa, how the hell did you do that? How does that work? Yeah. So, I mean, maybe that wouldn't even be the case. Anymore. Yeah, it might affect me completely differently. Yeah, I remember going to parties, drinking all night till everyone passed out at like 4 a.m., and then waking up at like 7 a.m. and seeing everyone in the room passed out and just, you know, I feel fine. I go get in my car and drive home. And everybody else is like, what happened to you? And I'm like, I got up and went home. And they were like, oh, man, we, God, I don't think anyone woke up till 2 in the afternoon. And we all had horrible hangovers. <laughs> and I was like, well, you know. Yeah. That sounds like that sounds like Mike's life. <laughs> well, all right. Um, I uh, well, so so at Comic Con, I had uh, just released a book called "The Guide to Getting Older," not old, just older. And um, one of the op- the opening chapter in that book is how to deal with a hangover, and it, it's a very sarcastic humor book. Um, because as we get older, the hangovers obviously get worse and worse. And, and I feel like sometimes we often drink more and, and, but who knows? But anyways, um, I feel like shag, I I would love to send you a copy of the book so you can read and relate to some of the other things that, that start happening as we get 
not not old, but just older. I love that right? because <laughs> it's funny, you know, as you age, your friends age too, and you start hearing them complain about things that come with old age. Yeah, there's a lot of complaining. There, there's, there's, a, there's a bit. Um, well, one other thing I'd like to mention too, um, you know, regarding drinking is, uh, <laughs> <laughs> of course, uh, since we're on the topic, uh, you did a, you did a, uh, one, a place that's, uh, you love tiki, uh, Chad, you love tiki and tiki bars. And one of the most popular tiki chains, uh, across the world is, is Trader Vic's. And they have a huge following of people for their merchandise. And you did a, a shirt and a menu for them recently, uh, uh, a few months ago, maybe more than a few months ago now. I'm not sure, but um, do you do you recall this? Yes, I recall that. <laughs> okay. Because <laughs> um, and you did a, a signing at the uh, Emeryville location, and. I, I was there because I'm up here in the near the Bay Area, and I I, I came and got my uh my, my menu signed by you, and I gifted you a little rectangular Palm Springs patch that I had designed. Do you do you recall that? Yes, I do. <laughs> I know exactly which patch you're talking about. <laughs> right on. Well, uh, yeah, that was me, and it was uh, I was very excited. Oh, thank you again. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, you've got, obviously you've got tons of stuff that that's out there. I'm, I'm still trying to get my hands on one of those old, those little portable record players that came out with your art on it a few years ago. Those are hard to find, but, uh, but I don't even New have Palm one. Springs book. Where can, uh, how do people find, I mean, how do people find your, your work if they're not in Las Vegas or if they're not in Palm Springs uh, to visit your store? Uh, it's online, shagstore.com or shag.com. Other bookstores sell it as well, but I would say go right to the source. So go to shagstore.com. And um, I mean, the Palm Springs book is pretty new, but what other new uh, projects that you have coming out or that are out that, that, that you can talk about? Well, I am designing a house out in Palm Springs called the Shag House. So it's going to be, you know, I'm doing the interior, the exterior, the landscaping, all of it. And it's a real house. It's got to be functional, but it's also going to look very shag. And that's going to be premiering at Palm Springs Modernism Week in February 2023. Wow. I, uh, so is it a house that someone's going to live in? Or is it like a, like a desk tourist kind of thing where people can pay and walk and wander around <laughs> there? And there's parties in there? Like what's going on in there? A little of both, actually. It will be available, you know, to, as an event space to have parties and stuff. Um, it'll be on tours. It'll be where I wow. stay at times. I have another house in Palm Springs, too. But, uh, yeah, so a little little of everything, I guess. That's really cool. I'm excited for that. Uncle Dad, Let's uh, when, it, when it happens, let's go. Uh, maybe we can come down and do, a, for the opening, we can come do, like, a, a press event and come. Oh, I would love that. That'd be awesome. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll talk to your people about it, Chad. <laughs> I got to ask you, though, just a question that I've been wanting to ask you. I love Palm Springs. I love Palm Springs. I love Joshua Tree. I go like every two months. Um, and I'm curious, do you love that toffee place there, that uh, Brandini's Toffee, I think it's called? Yes. In fact, I know Brandon, who started it. And we're probably going to do some sort of collaboration. Like I'm going to design some special packaging for him. That stuff is great. Whoa. I, <laughs> I have some literally in my fridge right now. Like I love that damn toffee. <laughs> oh, I'll tell That's him amazing. that when I see him. He'll like hearing that. Please, honestly, if you could connect with me, I will, we never had somebody who's had like a, like a, like a career like that, I would love to have somebody like that on the show and talk about, because oh. to me, his toffee is, is like, is legendary. And we never had something like that yet. I think that'd be great. If that's oh, something. Yeah. Well, Shaq, I, I just want to say again, man, I, I, I've talked to you briefly at, at signings and conventions, but, but really getting to talk to you in depth here and get to know you a little more. Um, you're a really kind person and uh, I've loved watching your career go and, um, and and thanks so much for coming on the show to talk with us, man. It's, it's been a, it's been an honor to have you on here. 
Yeah, thank you guys. It was fun. I like this. You guys are knowledgeable. I, I, I love you. Awesome. Awesome. I mean, Mike, Mike, <laughs> it was, was I, Mike doesn't get too excited about too many interviews that we have, <laughs> but, uh, he's, I've never seen his eyes light up as much as I have during this whole interview. And it's just been such a pleasure <laughs> seeing Mike happy. makes me happy, man. So thank you so much for being a part of the show. All right. Thank you guys. Thank you. Take care. Okay. All right. Ciao.